Um, hey, just a quick announcement. Uh, um, if you happen to know sign language, um, the Longs who are hearing impaired uh, members of our church, uh, they knew that the normal translators or interpreters wouldn't be here today, but they came anyway, uh, which is, um, I could make a lot of comments about the level of, of you guys listening to me sometimes, but the, um, uh, I'm not going to. The, but if you know tra- sign language and you would, or you think you have a better sermon that you've already memorized the signs for, uh, <laughs> if you would like to, if you could come forward, that would be great. If not, um, it'll be, we'll be fine. They, they know. So thank you guys. Um, again, seriously, don't hesitate. Jump up if that's you. Um, I also want to acknowledge and, uh, and, and communicate appreciation to over the last few years, we've had um, a few years ago, and I, I told, you know, over the last couple times I've preached, we've told, I've told the story of the inspiration of Nehemiah um, to, to kind of bring together my thinking and, and what a powerful picture this was, and, and I'll comment on that again in a minute. But um, during that time, as we've been looking at where are we as a church and how do we come back from COVID and and what is it looking like as we grow and as we, as we develop deeper and, and maybe wider? And so um, part of the conversations were that, you know, a while back there was a next steps team strategizing, looking at our numbers, seeing what's coming. Um, then there was, um, a, you know, the capital campaign team. There have been several prayer teams that have been running um, off and on during that whole time. And now um, if you're a part or have been a part of any of those teams or, or leadership board during that time over the last couple of years, could I, could you, you show your hand, raise your hands up? I know you don't want attention and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate that. But I want to pray my appreciate, pray to God for my appreciation for these people in particular. Um, it's it's impossible um, to do, in my opinion, to do a good job at all of leading a church or um, shepherding a church without these key people who are willing to step up and take responsibility and learn and lead alongside. And so I, I appreciate them so much, and I want to thank God for them this morning. So if you'll join me in praying, um, Father, I'm so grateful for all the things that you're doing. Uh, around the world right now, and especially in our nation, um, as we see young people stepping up, praying, singing, worshiping you together in unity, um, and feeling like it's just not an okay thing for them to stop. What a, what a beautiful thing that is. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless that uh, revival sweeping through many of our college campuses. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bring that same spirit of revival uh, to all your churches uh, here, in a, here in the West and around the world. And we would love that. We would love to see even more. Father, all the challenges and, and difficulties and heartbreak that are going on in people's lives as well. Lord, in the midst of all of that, for us to be engaging with your word, engaging with seeking your face, engaging with trying to learn what you have for us, what your plans are, what your path is for us. I thank you for the men and women who have been praying, who have been discussing, who have been debating, who have been Uh, facing these different challenges together as we've moved into this stage of what we're doing as a church into some of these next steps. And uh, Lord, I thank you that you have given us a faithful next step to take. And Lord, I pray that um, we would have the opportunity to take it. Thank you. Father, we bless you and we thank you in your son's magnificent name. Amen. Uh, So with that in mind, let me um, also say a couple of comments. One, uh, we're not, I'm not exactly sure why I, I have been doing this for a while now, but I got about halfway through my notes this morning. Now, the first service. And so here's the deal. When I write a sermon, it's, it's a contained concept. Like there are things in the middle that don't make a lot of sense until the end. I do that on purpose. Like I, I work hard at that stuff. So you have to come back next week. 
And I'm only going to get about halfway through my notes. And so you've signed up, whether you know it or not, you have to come back next week. Uh, it's just another one of those signs. If you're one of those people who's uncomfortable with, with organized religion, I feel like we kind of help protect you from that. Uh, because we're not super religious and we're, we're also not very organized. And so it's, that combo should help you. If that's you, that should help. This story of being inspired by Nehemiah uh, was really has been powerful in my life. I love Nehemiah. I've loved Nehemiah for a long time. I've studied Nehemiah several times. But the way in this situation um, that the story of Nehemiah has been, uh, has, has been given this uh, this, this unity, this unifying effect in feeling a sense of unity with Nehemiah, a man who died centuries ago, and how powerful that is. And the main lesson I wanted for you guys, uh, for all of us who were discussing this, is to see the power of God's Word to speak in our current moment. That what we're experiencing, for us it's new, for us it's challenging. For us, it may be our first rodeo. <clears throat> and then we get to read God's Word and discover it's not His first rodeo. Not even close. He's done this. There's a whole chapter in the Bible about this. There's a whole book in the Bible about this. Think about when we face suffering in our lives and we think, man, what are we supposed to do when we're, we're trying to live the righteous life and yet we're facing suffering? What's that all about? Well, there's a whole book called Job that, that engages with that very quite. In fact, it's probably the oldest book in the Bible that we have, the first written, the most ancient Hebrew that we have, was answering that question. And here we are, thousands of years later, still wrestling through those questions. It's our first time. It's not his. And it's such a great comfort. So that being said, let me, let me catch you up on where we are. The story, the story, we've told the story for about a month and then, and then getting to last week and saying, here's the, the completion of the story. And now our challenge, our encouragement was, if you are a member of our church, especially, and you say, I know I want to pledge for the over the next three years to give to this campaign. And some of you right now are going, oh, forgot, forgot to do that. Um, some of you are thinking, I still, need to, I still haven't had that follow-up conversation with my spouse about that. Or I haven't had that follow-up conversation with God about that. Or it may even be that you're saying, I haven't talked yet to the guy who sells lottery tickets to me. And I need to have that conversation with, with that person to say, what, what am I going to be pledging here? I don't, I don't know. That's between you and God. But, but you're realizing, I haven't had that conversation yet. We will continue to be taking pledges. Um, we say, this is a key week for us to communicate a lot. And we'll see that a lot was communicated. And then moving forward, where do we go with this? Where do we go? So, um, so first, let me give you our current pledge number. This is the amount that has been pledged. Um, there we go. So this is the number that has been pledged. A little over $2 million. So you're, the first response for all of us should be, wow, that's, that's a lot. Uh, a lot of people have stepped up in the church and said, I'm, I'm excited to pledge towards this. I'm ready to see this happen. I want to make this happen. Some of you at the same time are saying, man, that's amazing. Wasn't the goal like six and a half million? That looks like about a third of that. One, let me help with that. Remember also there was a million and a 1.2 million that was already in place that people had been giving towards whatever the future building goals were. So we put those numbers together. This is where we stand right now, pledging and current gifts. So that's a little more than halfway there. And I'm going to explain. I, have, I, I actually think this is a good indication that, um, that we can get there. And I'll, I'll explain why in a few minutes, why I think we can get there. Um, so this is where we are right now. We will continue to be taking pledges. 
as a church, all of us, um, for at least another month. And I don't, here's the thing, uh, really what John said this morning, we don't in any way want to confuse a capital campaign with Easter. So we're not, we're not going to be closing anything out then. We're going to talk about Easter. Easter changes everything. A capital campaign changes where some steel and brick and mortar goes. This, the Easter changes everything. And so we don't want to in any way confuse those. So sometime after Easter, we'll say, hey, we're, we're going to stop taking pledges now. You can still give, but we're not going to take any more pledges. And all our decisions will be based on this number. So again, if you haven't pledged yet, I'll talk about throughout periodically why I think that's important. But my main goal today is in wrapping up Nehemiah and moving into 1 Samuel. Now, again, if first service was any indication, I'm not going to get there, but I'm going to get partway through that to be prepared for that. By the way, if you are one of those people saying, oh, yeah, I do need to pledge, um, we do have the QR code, um, we have it up on the screen right now, you can pull out your phone and shine the, your, your camera at it, and it will, it will capture that and take you to the website. You can go to the church's website, there's a banner you can go to the giving section, and you do have to sign in. So just keep in mind, again, I know some people panicked about this. There's a pledge button. When you click that pledge button, it's going to ask you what you want to pledge. It's not going to immediately deduct that from your account or anything like that. Like you're not going to suddenly be that, that total. No, that's not how that works. It's just a pledge. Then you can go into your account and decide how you want to give. So I know that, that if you're like me and you're paranoid of every email that comes through, um, you probably all get emails from me periodically asking you to go buy Amazon gift cards for me. Um, everyone on the staff gets that about 10 times a year from me. It's, 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 it's because I'm a pastor and it's, uh, my, my email's on the church website. And anyway, if you've not gotten that, I'm sorry, you've been left out. I hope you don't feel too left out about that. Um, please don't go do that. Just <laughs> don't, don't do that. All right, so I understand if you're nervous about emails and that kind of stuff, you can go to the website yourself, click on those things. I'll explain why this is, I think, part of why this is important. But first, I want to pick up with Nehemiah. All right. As the wall is being built, you'll remember that Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, if you're not familiar with it, the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the Hebrew people had all been pulled into um, uh, exile in Persia. So I'm, I'm shortening the story, but they're in Persia. Um, at some point, Cyrus the Great starts sending people back to their home countries, and he sends people back to Israel and gives them an actual document saying you're allowed to do this. Now, for a long time, that concept was mocked historically um, that that would have happened, but then we found archaeological evidence that that exact thing happened. Not surprisingly, that's how the Bible works. Um, and, so, and so you go into history, you discover there's actually a moment, we know when this happened. Cyrus begins sending people back to their home countries. The people of Israel go back to Jerusalem. Many of them do, many don't. Go back to Israel and Jerusalem, but they're not rebuilding. Um, they're too afraid. They're too intimidated by the enemies who are surrounding them. They're living in, in abject poverty in God's nation, and, uh, and this, it's not going well. And that, that gets back to Nehemiah, who's one of the king's uh, right-hand men. He hears this, and the, he asks for permission, and the king sends him back to Jerusalem. And his vision, what he believes God has told him to do, is to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, a massive task because the whole city was demolished. When Nebuchadnezzar took the last group, he leveled the city. If there were stones on stones, he took them apart. The temple was dismantled, the walls were dismantled, everything was systematically destroyed in Jerusalem. And the thought of going back 
especially just a, a few dozen or a few hundred, even a few thousand people and stacking giant stones again, mortaring them together, building a meaningful wall. It just seemed impossible to everybody, much less to get the temple built, much less to get the palace built. It just wasn't being done. He hears this and he says, it's time. And as the wall is being built, we see in Nehemiah, we see him facing enemies from the outside and from within. Sanballat and two other Persian governors of nearby regions, they have, they've started and never relented, lying, mocking, and threatening Nehemiah and the people of Israel. Nehemiah, because of the kind of man that he is, is not impressed, nor is he taken in. He continues to be focused on the task that God has given him. He continues to guide the people to be cautious and yet courageous, faithful, and diligent. And he always turns to God first. Others may not understand the desperate need that he has for God's positive judgment on his efforts, but we should. Someday we stand before God. Someday we stand before God and the responsibilities that he's given us, the roles he's given us, the identity he's given us, he's going to ask for an accounting. Now, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no fear of his wrath in that moment. This is not a moment of his judgment and wrath on us. This is a moment of that disciplined conversation that healthy parents have with their children all the time. So how'd that go? How do you think you did? Tell me about that. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about where you missed it, where you hit it, where you nailed it, and where you whiffed. Let's, let's talk through that. And we're all going to have that conversation, even believers, with God someday. It's not a matter of fear, but it is a matter of responsibility. This is a God who loved me enough to choose me, to call me, to gift me, to seal me, to make me responsible for something in his kingdom. And someday he's going to want to have a conversation with me. Chris, let's talk about you as a son. Let's talk about you as a son. Let's talk about that. And that conversation is going to go easy or bad or poor or whatever. Now it's, again, not a matter of wrath. I don't fear this, but I want it to go well. I want him to say, hey, you know what? You're pretty good. I like to see, once you put your faith, I like to see that you are willing to submit and willing to listen and willing to learn. He's going to have that conversation with me. Hey, let's talk about you as a dad. And I want him to be able to say, you know what, you know what Chris? You're a world-class dad. I mean, there were a lot of good dads out there, but you were up at the top. Man, you really did well. You had no idea what you were doing, but you really tried hard. You didn't quit. You kept going. You kept pushing through. I want to hear that conversation with me as a husband. We're going to have that conversation. Hey, you know what? You are a world-class husband. That's what I want to hear. You are near the top. Man, you, I, I was so impressed. Again, you had no idea what you're doing, but you kept listening. You kept learning. You wouldn't quit learning and trying to be better, and you did that all the way through. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we know from the book of James that he's going to have that conversation with me as a teacher, and that's going to be a strict conversation. All right, let's talk. I can't play around with this. You taught people. How did you do? Let's discuss it. There's, a, there's a, a judgment that happens in that conversation with us. I don't fear it, but I want it to go well. I think Nehemiah gets this. Nehemiah gets to stand before God someday, and God's going to say, okay, I sent you to go build a wall. Let's talk about how you did. How faithful were you? Did you stay with it? Did you give up? And, and Nehemiah gets this in ways that probably very few people around him maybe got it. Maybe some of them understood it. Maybe some of those goldsmiths or perfumers or others were thinking, I've got to stack this little section and someday God's going to talk to me about this little section. Whatever God gives us, he's going to talk to us about how faithful we've been with it. This is not, again, 
I was raised on a scary version of this, that God's going to have this 9mm reel, because that's how we showed films back when I was a kid, this 9mm reel, and I could imagine the anxiety as it counted down from 3 or 5 or whatever down to 1. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about. And the idea that my life is going to be put on a screen, and we were going to have this conversation, horrified conversation of all the embarrassing and terrible things I have done in my life, and my grandmother was going to be in the room, and I just was horrified, just the concept of all of that happening, and instead to recognize, no, no, this is about him not me. Of course, that's the case. And that's the whole point. And Nehemiah gets this. Look at this. Nehemiah 4, 6 through 9. By the way, if you know anybody who was in the first service, they've probably already told you that we had the wrong verses all the way through. Part. Again, that's that disorganized religion. I'm just trying to help you out. Um, I had, I'd written, for some reason, put the number 6 instead of 4. And so it created confusion for everybody. But you get to have it right. Um, Nehemiah 4, 6 through 9. So we built the wall. Now, I have to already go ahead and stop and comment on this. This is one of my, I love this running narrative throughout the story. So we built the wall. This is what God had called them to do. Build a wall. So that's what they did. When things were hard, that's when they built the wall. But when things were easy, that's when they built the wall. And when their enemies were really on them and really strong, that's when they built the wall. And when they seemed to be victorious, you see, now that's when they built the wall. They were stuck on this. This is what God has called us to do, to make disciples. When there are distractions, what do we do? We make disciples. We teach our kids, we challenge our students, we make friends, and we fan into flame the spirit in them and them in us. When there are enemies, what do we do? We make disciples. It's what we do. It's who we are. What about when there's an administration in the White House we really like? What should we do then? We should make disciples. That's what we should do. What about when there's an administration we really don't like? That's when we're supposed to make disciples. That's when we're supposed to do that. What about when there's confusion or uncertainty in the church? That's when we're supposed to be making disciples. And when there's certainty, we need to be making disciples. That's the idea. We never, never stop reaching into our world, calling people out of certain and internal death with the good news, unwrapping their tomb wrappings, teaching them to walk with Christ with us day after day until my heart stops beating. We go, we reach, we call, we live, we teach, we tell. All right, back to the passage. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. God's very word. While his enemies clearly do understand what's going on with him, they understand what he's doing. They see it, they get it, and they're afraid of it, so they seek to stop him. And he's not impressed. And we see story after story of them trying one tactic after another, and he doesn't buy it. What's more heartbreaking is the people on the inside who seem to either not understand at all or understand and think it's just too much. In Nehemiah 4.10, we get this. In Judah, it was said. Now, this is, this, is not in, this is not in Persia. This is in Judah. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And over the next few verses, what we see is that Nehemiah has to put guards up not just against the enemies, the Sanballat and his ilk. He has to put up guards against the bad attitudes of other Jews. This is 
horrific. And think of how much more difficult this is. It's, it is a, people start coming to the wall to convince the work. So they're coming to the outside of the wall, talking to someone who's on the inside of the wall, stacking rocks, and they're not saying, oh, this work is too much. Let me help. What they're saying is, this work is too much. You should quit. And he has to post guards against other Jewish people who keep trying to step in and saying, this is, this is a bad idea. We don't trust this. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, as is predictable, Nehemiah does the right thing. He calls together the people and he reminds them whose they are and who they work for. He calls them together to remind them their identity in God. Listen to this, Nehemiah 4.14. I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid for them. Don't not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. See, when we remember whose we are, we usually remember what we need to do now. Isn't it the habit in church very often to try to make our activity turn us into something that we're not? If I behave this way, I'll become this. And that's backwards from the gospel. The gospel message is this is who you are. This is whose you are. He has, this is who God is, our theology should dictate our identity. This is who God is and that's what it means about me. And once I have my theology and my identity in place, then my activity will follow rightly. And that's exactly what we see. Back to verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your, your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Who, by the way, most of them are working alongside of them. Stand up not only to our enemies, but stand up to your neighbors who are calling you to quit who are calling you away from this. No, that discipleship thing. You don't know how to answer enough questions. Oh, that's for the professional Christians. Oh, that's... Nope. We are all called by Him to do that. If you've ever wondered, I wonder what God's calling is for my life. I can tell you. Would you like to know? It's that you go and you make disciples. He's been pretty clear about that. Now, exactly what does that look like? What is His plan for how you're going to do that? I don't know. You may not either. Rarely do we. But the, the fact that He's called us to do this, I know that's what He's called us to do. And when we understand who we are in Christ, we see that. But soon, here's what's wild. In the story that gets even darker, those who are working and are prepared to fight are running out of food for themselves. Their families who are with them are running out of food, who are working with them are running out of food and supplies. Jerusalem is still in ruins, and they can't gather, they can't hunt. To make matters worse, there's been a famine, and many of them have gone into debt to keep working. So I want you to imagine you have some people who have gone into debt in order to keep working on the wall, and it turns out other, other Jews, other Israelites, not Sanballat, not the Arabs, not the Ammonites, other Jews are now loaning them money at exorbitant rates and taking their daughters and sons as servants instead. Literally purchasing their sons and daughters away from the ones who are trying to work, not joining them in the work, but working against the entire process. Nehemiah confronts them. I wish I could unpack this passage, but as it is, I don't have time. Nehemiah confronts these people in the nation, demands that they, re that they remove all debt, that they just totally wipe out all debt. They demands that they cancel debts. He demands that they give back family members that have been sold into servitude. And then he challenges them to get on board and start, if you're not going to work, then at least you should be feeding the workers. If you're not going to work, you should at least be supplying something for the workers. And miraculously, they do. 
That's the most shocking thing, is that a lot of them actually then do. They realize they've been wrong. They've been out of line. Now, this is when in the sermon I had put in the notes, now's when I want to show the giving units number. So this is the number that I am most, I don't know, in love with. This is the number I love. I love this. This was the number that when we did the last one, we went for 300 and we wanted 301 giving units, meaning families that are pledging. Okay. These are actually pledge units, not giving units. Three, and we aim for 301 because that's what, that's what Gideon fought with. Last time Gideon was who inspired us. Gideon had 300 member and then Gideon. So that's 301. And so we wanted 301 families to be pledging. And we ended up with like 320 something pledge, pledging units. Now, that means that pre-COVID, when our numbers were lower, we had 300, approximately 320 pledging units. As of right now in this campaign, we have 106. A third of what we had last time. So with a third of people in the church who could be pledging, who could get involved and give, we are halfway and more to our goal. What that tells me is God has given us the resources we need to get there. It's, it's there. We're here. It's just a matter of more of the other two-thirds saying, oh, I ought to get involved with this. I need to be, be part of this community. This is what excites me about giving, pledging things. The money is just not exciting to me. I, I, I would love for it to be. That's a thing. I've often wondered, like, I, I think I would have made just truly a terrible televangelist. Because, because like me getting up and being like, you need to give to this, like, nah, honestly, don't, don't give to it. It's just a terrible idea. I don't need a jet. Like that would have been me. That would have been me trying to be a televangelist. Like I just, I just really would have been miserable at it. And, and because, because what I get excited about is the community, is the unity, is the discipleship. Like I get really pumped about that. And this is the number. That's why this number I get excited about. Like this shows me that all of us strangers and we are often strange. If you don't believe me during meet and greet sometime, go to the other side of the room. You'll be like, who are you people? I've never seen you before, right? It is a, there's a sense in which, and especially since COVID, because COVID, we know, the COVID was like somebody popped the blanket and we all flew up in the air. And about a quarter of us came down someplace totally different. Like it's about a quarter of, I, you, I came back after COVID, I was like, I don't know a lot of these, who are, where did you come from? And it was, and, and, and about a quarter of our people vanished and started going to other churches. I hope, I assume the ones we've checked on have. And so it's like, wow, that's, how are we going to be, how are we going to experience the community of this? Well, we worship together. We serve together. We greet together. We, we, we mingle together. We make disciples together. We work in children's ministry together and we give to projects together. These are multiple ways that we can experience the unity of the community and who we are as a local church. And so I'm going to unpack that a little more. Not uniformity, again, one of our mantras, it's not, about uni it's not about uniformity, it's about unity. Remember, there are perfumers and goldsmiths, wealthy people and servants, priests and business people, old and young. They are the same team building the same wall. Different sections, different abilities, different skill sets, different financial situations. They have unity, though, even though they don't have uniformity. One of the things we talk about periodically is diversity within our church. Um, now, the minute we hear in 2023, we hear the word diversity and we think ethnic diversity, which is totally appropriate. And that is something that we aim for. We jump to that and that's a good instinct. As a church, we're a good representation of the fact that we still face the consequences 
of generations of sin. That generations ago, as particularly the white church would not allow other of the minorities to be a part of the church. And so what began to happen was this divergence of culture. This divergence of culture, which never should have happened. It never should have happened. This diverge, We should have always been in the church creating a church culture. That's what that should be. But what happened is because of the sin of the white church, we see multiple cultures get created. And now we, here we are hundreds of years later going, how do we bring everybody together? Our theology is sound. Our love for one another is sound. Um, uh, what we're teaching is great. There we're unified in all these ways. But the problem is now our cultures are hundreds of years different in the way we experience, for example, a Sunday morning service. I don't think that's sin. I don't think that's wrong. Um, I think it's a consequence of sin that it exists, and us, and I, I hope if you're not praying actively that God would help our congregation look more like heaven will look, I would love for you to pray for that. I pray for it all the time. Not because I think that's somehow morally superior, but because it would look more like heaven will look, and I would rather our services look more like heaven would look. I think that'd be great. That's an area of diversity that we still struggle with, and we still want to improve on, and we are trying to recover from generations of sin um, and we get to help lead and try to serve in that. But that's not the diversity I wanted to focus on this morning. Here's the diversity that struck me. This is one of our great strengths, I think. Now I'm going to ask a question, and I don't know the answer to it, which is always scary and risky, okay? Especially from a pulpit. But here's the question. First service, it went great. And I was, first service is one I was most nervous about, so we'll see. How many of you <clears throat> were raised in something other than a Southern Baptist home? How many of you were raised in something other? That's what I thought. Okay, so again, but probably half to two, more than half, maybe, maybe as many as two-thirds. I couldn't get a quick read. In fact, let me ask this. How many of you were raised in a home that was not really a church home at all? Again, okay, not at all surprising. This, I think, is part of the diversity that gives us a special strength here at South Spring is that we have the opportunity, we get to evaluate all these different things and go, that. That's biblical. That's sound. That's good. We'll keep that. Like that. And we get to test other traditions and go, you know what? I think that's just a tradition. I think it's only a tradition, and I think it's founded in something not biblical or not sound or not good or not encouraging. So guess what we get to do here is we get to kind of boot that out the door and not go with that. Now, sometimes we do that and we go like, oh, that's why we do that. And we have to go back and relearn it. That's okay. Failure is always an option for us. We try something new and we go, how about this? And it, and it totally blows up in our face and we go, okay, that's well, we learned something. I think this is a power. This is some of the diversity that we experience is that, is that it's, this isn't some, something that is tradition-led. As important as tradition is, it's not tradition-led. It is biblically-led, I think. That's what we're trying to do. So when we talk about these kind of things, we get to do that. And if for no other reason, church, uniformity is boring. I have no love for it. I have no love for uniformity. I love unity. The melody's great. The harmony, wow. That's what I love. I love when we're able to bring that. And so the more of that that we can bring so that we have unity, we're singing the same song, we're building the same wall without uniformity. I'm not being negative about the Southern, by the way, let me just comment. Um, some of the things that, that the, the traditions we've inherited through the Southern Baptist world are solid gold, solid Bible. I love it. And so we get to take all of it and test it according to scripture. This all, this all connected um, to another question that I had this week. 
through one of the podcasts, the conversation that we had, and that was about membership. So this seemed like an appropriate time to take just a moment and talk about this concept of membership. Um, Because I know, especially when we come from diverse church backgrounds, that word means something very different to us. Um, Sometimes it's an encouraging word and sometimes it's an offensive word. Um, I worked at a church, at a Bible church, while I was in seminary at Southwestern in Fort Worth. I worked at a Bible church. At no time was I a member. I was just on paid staff. But I wasn't a member because in order to be a member, you had to go through four training classes. You had to go through these four full classes on Sunday morning. Well, I was a student minister. I was busy on Sunday morning. So for four years, I worked for the church as a staff member, as a staff member, but not a church member. In, a, in the non-denominational church, if, you're, if you've got that background, you're like, yeah, that's normal. And it is. People go forever and they never, right? They never join. It's just, it's just normal. Versus at the traditional Southern Baptist church, like the second time you show up, they're like handing you cards like, you want to join now? You want to join? We want to... That's so bad sometimes at Southern Baptist churches. I thought for a long time that Southern Baptist churches were like schools, that they somehow got paid based on the number of members. They're like that's how money comes from the denomination. Like they write you a big... Okay, admit, how many of you thought that's the way that worked? Uh-huh. So... The money doesn't flow that direction, just so you'll know <laughs> from denominations. Um, not with ours, at least. So this is, a, this is a, it was fascinating, my experience with that. So what does it mean to be a member? Is that like being a member of NATO? Is like being a member of a church is like being a member of NATO? Because a lot of people seem to want to be a member of NATO. Maybe, maybe that's what it's like. Um, maybe like being a member of the AARP. Anybody? Getting those flyers? Uh-huh. Getting those mailers? I'm starting to get those. You go, maybe it's like being that. Here's what I think people are afraid of. Maybe it's like being a member of a gym, right? Which there's a lot of reasons to be afraid of that. Mostly just the guilt of not going. But the other than that, you go like, what else is there? Here's what I think really gets it is people feel like maybe being a member of a church is like being a member of a country club, right? I pay my dues. I do a little work. I get some perks. Maybe I get to play golf for a little bit cheaper. But mostly it's for status. Mostly it's just so I can say I'm a member of a country club, Right? Why don't we meet for lunch at the club, right? I'll pay. It's a, it's a, that that's what you think. Well, here's what's wild. Let me help you out. Member is not something that the church took from country clubs, that term. Member is a term that country clubs took from the church. It goes, it's an ancient concept that starts with the apostle Paul. That's where all of our concepts of member come from. See, the word member, membrum, Latin, means a part of the body. That's where the word comes from. Member comes from the idea, are you a member of the church like you're a member of a country club? No. You're a member of the church like you're a member of a, the body. You're, you're not like a, a, a member of a country club. You're like an eye or a hand or a foot or a liver. I don't know where the liver is. Liver? Wherever liver is. That's what, somewhere in here. The, like that's what you're That's what it means to be a member of the church is you're saying, I'm now a part of the process of the whole working towards a unified purpose. This actually, this is, so I I love uh, the etymology of words, the history of words, etymana online, um, which is one of my favorite go-tos. Listen to what they say on their website. Ready? For the, the root concept of membership. This meaning was reinforced by, if not directly taken from the use of member in Christian theology and discourse. From the mid-140s, uh, mid like around the time of Paul, for, quote, a Christian, 
meaning, quote, a member of the church as a, quote, body of Christ. This is where the word came from. This is where we are the ones who are the original members. Being a member just means that we are coming together to serve the greater whole, the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 27. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Membership means the responsibility to mutually support the cause that we're all a part of. That we serve the head. That doesn't mean the preacher, it means Jesus Christ. All working under the same leadership, Christ. If you put your faith in Christ, you are part of the church. Capital T, capital C, the church. Now, if you want to serve in the extension of the church called the local church, small letters, um, you have to be in alignment with the purpose and ministry of that local church, obviously, otherwise there's no point in them. We have a whole process for that. What we learned is that the tradition of, hey, do you want to sign on the dotted line? What happened was people would come and they would join and they would vanish and we never got to know them. The reason we were growing as a church early on was because the number of people coming in the front door was slightly outnumbering the people leaving through the back door who we never got to know. That is still also always a chronic problem in a larger church. But we wanted to fight back against that, so we put a process in place. We want you to have some conversations. We want you to watch some videos. We want to follow up with you. It's really not all that difficult, but it is harder than a lot of churches because we actually want to have someone meet you before you leave so that we can reach out and get to know you a little bit and so that maybe you can stay and find a family here. This is a part of who we are. Why be a member? So that you can serve with the rest of us in this tiny cell of the body of Christ. It ought to be the ambition of all Christ followers to serve the kingdom in community. So the reason we ask people to join, you don't get a cheaper golf anything. You don't get to use the property now. Everyone gets to do that. That's not special. It doesn't matter whether you're a member or not. You can, do, you can use our property. Um, if you are a member, it is then our property, and we become stewards of it. That's who we are. So we want to serve in His kingdom. Listen to part of the expression of this, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, if you're members of the, members of the body of Christ, and now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is where that concept comes from. So if you're like, oh man, in a second when we do the invitation time, if this is the first time you've thought of it, you need to reach out through an email because we have a process we go through. If you've already been through that process and you're ready to join our family, we often will say our dysfunctional family. That doesn't mean we're mean or abusive or anything. It just means we know we're broken just like the rest of you. Um, we, we are, we've got our issues and everybody does. We're not saying come join our perfect family because we would be lying um, and then if we were a perfect family and you joined, it wouldn't be perfect anymore, right? Because you know you're not perfect. So the truth is we are broken people in need of a savior and we come together under that heading. And I want to give you a quick example. Partially I'm taking advantage of this opportunity because we get lots of questions about what's going on with the limbs. Um, Austin and Kim Lim. Kim Lim is our, uh, make sure I get the title right. She is our associate minister for the preschool. And so uh, we, we have our tie. I'm terrible at titles, as you know. So anyway, she, many of you work with her, you know her, you love her. Uh, many of us know them so well. So they've been out for a while. Well, that's because um, a little over a month ago, um, she gave birth to, her, to their son, Christopher. This is Christopher. Um, Christopher's heart is not functioning the way it's supposed to. 
And so he's on a machine that, that pumps, his, pumps the blood through his body for him. Um, and so we've been praying for them and, uh, and love them and reaching out to them. And if you have been praying for them, by the way, don't hesitate to send them a text or a note saying, prayed for you today. They need to hear that. They're, they're in Dallas and they will be in Dallas for a while. Um, they spend all day there with him um, in the hospital typically. And, it's, and, and so here's what happened. Part of what happened is, and I can't tell you how much I love this. Um, I think some people will be bugged by this. I was exactly the opposite. was several people in the church have reached out. They know that there's a, like a GoFundMe for them and there's people raising support for them. And people assumed, wait a minute, we're having to do a GoFundMe for them. Is that because the church has you know, cut off their employment or stopped paying their insurance? Like what's, what's happened with that? And one, I just got, again, I mean this, I love that. I love that we would get a confrontation like, hey, hey, what about, what about, Ken? are you guys? And I love that. I love that our church does that, like standing up for the staff and getting bowing up. There was a, there was a situation that's one of my favorite moments uh, in the last few years where, um, where there was a miscommunication and on a mission trip, someone thought we were going to like get on to somebody on a mission trip, a staff member. And so that person met with me first like, hey, hey, are you going to get on to that? Like we got to have a great conversation about it. It was awesome. But I love that someone said, hey, if, if, if there's a problem, I'll go toe-to-toe with you so that the staff member stays out of it. I love it. And so it's a, it was a beautiful moment. This is, a, this is an example. Yes, we are taking great care of them as a church. All of us are. Um, yes, they have all the insurance options on the table. Yes, she is still employed by the church. Yes, we are there for her and praying for her and for them. Um, and uh, and even, I, I'm even on the guest list. I get to go visit um, sometimes. And so I'm, I'm just so proud that we get to do that. And I'm proud of how our church is loving and supporting uh, them. So we get to mourn with them and grieve with them and celebrate. Just this week, we found out, just like Friday, we found out that, that Christopher has been added to the transplant list. The rest of his body is healthy enough that they're willing to do a transplant. And that's a miracle already, just that right there. Now, what I'm about to pray in a second is that God will just heal him. So that there doesn't need to be another baby who, doesn't, who can't use a heart. That doesn't need to, I know it happens, it happens every day, thousands of times, and yet, what a cool thing if God would just magically, supernaturally, whatever word you want to use, heal that heart. Um, but if not, we want to pray for them. So if you will join with me to pray for them, and then I'll wrap up our time. Father, I love uh, that this is a church that fights for its staff and its people and our shepherds and our under-shepherds. Lord, thank you for that. And I thank you for um, Kim and Austin and their faithfulness, and I thank you for Christopher. He is so beautiful. Lord, we would love to celebrate you. We celebrate you now for the love and the beauty and the moments, hours, every single day, every single minute that we get to be with Christopher in this world. We celebrate and we thank you for it. We know he's yours and we know you love him more than any of us do, even his mom and dad. Um, And it's, it's your responsibility to take him home when it's time. Lord, our prayer though is that you would heal his heart and make it well so that it pumps the blood the way it's intended to do. And that that is done, and it would be a shock to everybody. And doctors could hear the truth of the power of your healing word. I pray you would speak over him and heal them. If you decide to heal him um, at this point through a transplant and all the grief and challenges that that means, all the differences that that can mean, um, all the things that we will have to come alongside them with, Lord, we are excited to do so with them. And we pray, Lord, you would provide this. We grieve with them, and we celebrate with them. Lord, I have no idea how people face moments like that without your church. I can't even fathom it. So Lord, I pray that all of us who know these moments are coming in our life, all of us who have lost babies, 
and lost friends and family who have faced these crisis moments in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to only dig in deeper to the power of your body. We pray these things in your almighty name. Amen. So, we sorrow together. We, 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 we celebrate together, just like that passage says. So this is what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. If this is the church where you want to serve, we ask that you become a member so that we can know you well enough to know you're someone who should be serving here. If you're someone who would say, listen, I like coming to church, but I am healing. I, I need a place to heal because I've been broken, I've been hurt. Stay as long as you want. You stay as long as you want. If you say, I'm wrestling with rebellion in my own heart, and I shouldn't be teaching or leading yet because of the rebellion in my own life, we love you. Stay as long as you want. We're not going to have you join yet, because joining is to serve. You can stay as long as you want, and we will love you and stay with you. And whatever those things are, if you are ready to serve, then of course we would say, time to join. We need to know who you are at a new level, and we would ask that of you. If you're not interested, if, you're, if you've got what it takes to serve and you're just not interested in serving, there may be a stage of rebellion in your heart you need to deal with anyway. The church is not fit for that. It's not appropriate for that. If you're not interested in serving in any of the capacities, AV, hospitality, worship team, giving, children's ministry, community engagement, safety, I could go on and on and on. The list is massive. I would say, yeah, you need to, you need to check your heart. If you're not ready to serve Though you say you're a follower of Christ, you may need to check the condition of your heart before God. But if you do, and I will, I will, next week I'll reference this again. I'm going to reference a handful of people that you could look to and say, I want you to, I want to, I should serve like they serve. We call them our deacons. Everyone in our, every member of our church should be a servant. Some lead in that service. And we want to, I'll draw attention to them next time. So I'm going to wrap up here. Most of the rest of the book of Nehemiah is really about these issues of membership. And I'm going to wrap it all up, but it won't be till the end of next week's sermon. So you have to come back and hear the rest of it. Otherwise, you know, that, that feeling of discontent you're having right now, I hope that's what you're having right now, is, is going to not be fulfilled until you come back next week and get to hear the rest of it. So you're kind of stuck. Um, as we look at 7 through 13 and wrap up, and then we're going to move into 1 Samuel. And here's what's wild. In this weeks of studying Nehemiah, we have seen one of the greatest human leaders in history. If you've never studied him through that lens, I recommend it. Go back and read through it and just be stunned by this man's ability, and I'll talk more about this next time, to unify. It's incredible. We're then going to transition to 1 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm going to wrap up our time today with reading this little section at the end of 8 and into 9. So if you'll stand with me, I'll read this, and then... And then I hope that the Spirit is speaking to you. If you're a member of our church um, and you've been inspired to say, I need to get on board, I need to pledge, we need to solve these challenges that we face with space for our students, with space for adult ministry, with space for our staff, we need to solve that and I want to pledge to that. Great. If you've got questions or comments or arguments about that, we'd love to hear from you. If you're someone who's in that architectural world, you're an engineer, you're a builder, you're something like that, we're going to, the next stage is to put together a team of professionals who can then interact with whoever we hire to begin to have those conversations. I hope you'll let us know about that because that's the next team. There's always another team that we're working with. But whatever it is, if this is the first you've heard of a, of a Savior who steps in and takes that wrath so we don't have to be afraid of those moments of judgment, that they can be a conversation with a loving father, not with a wrathful judge, I'd love to encourage you with that. Get to know Jesus. Come and pray. And let us talk with you about that. If you've been through our welcome home process, 
and ready to join that dysfunctional family, we'd love for you to do that as well. If you'd like to start that process, you can let us know any way you want to. You can come tell us, you can send an email, whatever, we'll get you into it. But having gone through Nehemiah, now I want you to hear this, and we're going to have to connect with this man named Saul, because he's probably more like us than Nehemiah is, to be perfectly honest, or we're more like him. So let's engage with that. Wrapping up, 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 9-2. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphai, and Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than all the people. That's our next leader we're going to be introduced to. The very words of God. Follow as the Spirit leads. 